we sure do appreciate you, Greg, and those that lead us in worship with you. And I thank you for you that take up the offering and for Mark and doing what he does up in the booth, especially hitting record every Sunday morning. I am appreciative, so appreciative that you are here this morning. I hope when you came in, you have a Bible, whether it's something in tangible form or something in electronic form. I hope you'll take that and turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 is where we're going to continue in our study through the Word of God together. So this is not something, a standalone message. This is just something that we have been working through together as a church family on Sunday mornings. We've been working through this book of Malachi. So in a few moments, we're going to start in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6 and work down through um, verse 12. But before that, I'm just kind of curious, does anybody, is anybody in the room familiar with the name of Alan Stanford? Alan Stanford was born in 1950, born in a um, maybe middle class to lower income family there in a small Texas town just about 90 miles south of Dallas, Texas. Grew up, graduated high school, went on to school, graduated with a degree in business from Baylor there in Waco, Texas, and he tried his hand at several different businesses, but he couldn't really find one that stuck until he entered into the financial industry. Eventually, he would settle in Antigua, one of the islands there in the, the Caribbean. And so Alan there in Antigua started what became known as the Stanford Financial Group. And part of their operation was not only that they created an international bank, but they also managed people's money. So you have a 401k, you have a retirement, you have some money you want to park somewhere and to earn interest or earn some kind of a return on it. Um, Alan Stanford was your man. So the company grew, the, the, uh, the resources grew, the, the financial group grew, the bank grew, and at one point is reported that the Stanford Financial Group had over 50 billion, that's B as in boy, 50 billion dollars under management. Their claim was they had clients in over numbering over 50,000 people from over 140 different countries that were giving the money, they were having, they were securing their money to deposit in mother, whether it's in the bank or whether it is in the management company, whatever it was, but you had over 50,000 people, over $50 billion, 50,000 people, $50 billion, all there, and Alan Stanford was the CEO and kind of the head cheese over all of it. Then 2009 came. Charges were filed against Mr. Stanford. Charges were filed against the Stanford Financial Group because it was alleged and later decided in court that Mr. Stanford had been guilty of taking these funds and taking these resources and using them in ways that were not intended. He was not only embezzling money, but he was swindling people out of their money. He was promising people things with their money that they didn't receive. We would call it in a Bertie Madoff kind of thing as a Ponzi scheme. He was taking money from one person, promising them something in return, and then he would give to someone else, and he was taking and taking and taking and taking, and this thing was growing and growing and growing and growing. And so in 2009, later to be convicted in 2012, he was convicted of laundering and misusing over $7 billion. To date, last time I looked, to date there are still over 25,000 people that have never received a penny of their money back on their investment. 
We listen to a story like that. Bernie Madoff was the largest in history, in, in recent history. Uh, Alan Stanford was the second. And when you think about that, you think how terrible that can be that someone would take something that doesn't belong to them and then use it for personal purpose or use it in a deceitful, misguided, criminal way. Mr. Stanford had a yacht, and he wanted to add on to his yacht. He wanted to just add six foot onto his yacht. But the way the yacht was built and designed, the engineer said it's not going to be cheap. Mr. Stanford said, I don't care. He spent $220 million extending his yacht by six feet. I take it it wasn't canoe. But you know, we listen to a story like that, and we think, how in the world could someone misuse, mishandle, and misappropriate something that isn't theirs. I want you to think about that and have that in the back of your mind as we get to Malachi chapter 3. God is speaking to the church. He's speaking to his people. And, and throughout this letter, that we this, this book known as the prophet of Malachi, God is speaking to his people. And I believe there's still application to his church. And he's speaking to his people. And he's giving them a, a bit of a reflection. He's giving them a bit of a perspective. He is saying, this is what you're doing. This is what I see. This is what I see you doing. And this is what I want to see you doing. And he's giving them a reflection. He's giving them an understanding of what he desires to see in their lives. And so God is coming in. He's using Malachi, not only as his voice, but also as his pen, and to speak to Malachi and to write down the words and to say, this is what God sees. God says, this is what I've already commanded you to do. Here is where you're falling short. Here is where you're missing the application. Here's where you're missing the understanding. And here is where I want you to be. So as we have gone through this letter, God has given numerous amount of reflection onto the people, talking about the way they live, talking about what they say, talking about where they go, talking about what they do. And this morning, God is going to give a reflection, and he's going to speak to the people through the mouth of Malachi and going to speak to them about what they give. Not about you, but sometimes you get into Baptist churches and you just assume that all the preacher wants to do is just get in your back pocket. All the preacher wants to do is your money, your money, your money. And some people show up for church and they're a visitor and they're like, ah, I see, I knew it. As soon as I show up, he's going to talk about money. I'm not talking about money this morning. It's going to be addressed. It's going to be here. But I want you to hear from my heart. My concern this morning is not your pocket. My concern is your heart. And ultimately, where God is going to go with this passage, he's going to use their money as an example, but ultimately, what God is trying to get at is the condition of their heart. Now, if you're here this morning and you already get on edge because you think money, 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 well, maybe that money is what has your heart. So as we get into this passage, God is going to speak to his people, and he's going to speak to them about what they are giving to God. Now I'm going to read verses 6 down through verse 12, and then we're going to back up. And you see there in your notes, if you've got a copy of that bulletin, or be up behind me on the screen if you didn't get one. We're just going to look at some ways that we give to God, some things that God lays out here in this passage that he wants us to give to him. So I'm going to start here in my copy of God's Word in verse 6 of chapter 3. If you'd follow along in your copy of God's Word and listen to what God says through the pen of Malachi. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? 
Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soul and your vine in the field shall not fail, fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The word that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. Here in the text, God is going to use money, specifically the tithe as the example, but God is more concerned about the condition, as I said, of the person's heart. So here has he, as God has done previously in the passage, there is a conversation. God says this through the mouth, mouth of Malachi, and then Malachi says, but you, speaking for the people, you are saying that. And so you see the same thing represented where it's like two parties are speaking, but it doesn't have it on who's speaking. So <coughs> there in verse Seven, God says, return to me. The people say, how shall we return? Then God comes back and says, will man rob God? And so there's back and forth. And so you have to pay attention to know who is doing the talking, who is at play. But ultimately, what God is going to do, and you might find more um, things you can pull out of this text than I, but he's going to talk about things that we give to him. The first thing I want us to know together as a church as we come to this passage is, is God's going to talk about giving to him in our relationship. Giving to him in our relationship. You go back up and look at verse 6. It says, for I the Lord do not change. Now you might look at that and say, well, isn't that a strange passage? Isn't that a strange verse? God, why would God say that? He's going to talk in a minute about what they're giving to him and how they're giving back to the, 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 the ministry of the church and the work of the temple and of the priest. Why would God say that? He says, for I do not change. What God is doing is he's reminding them that God does not change. You may say, well, that's kind of elementary, Spence. Well, yes, but it is very controversial in today's time. Because there's a lot of people in this world that want to change God so they can change the definition of sin, so they can change the definition of marriage, so they can change the definition of morality, so they can change the definition of right and wrong, so they can change the definition of heaven and hell, so they can change all of these definitions, and if they get God to change, then they can change. So God wants to remind them when it comes to the condition of their heart, when it comes to the condition of their spirit, they need to remember that God has not changed. Jerry Vines tells a story, and maybe other preachers have told before, but I've heard Jerry Vines say it so many times, of a story about a husband and a wife, and, and they're, they're 20, 30 years into their married life, and they're driving down the road in the pickup truck, and the husband's over there, and he's driving, and the, and the wife's sitting over in the passenger seat as they're driving down the road. She looks up to the husband and says, Honey, do you remember those days? Those days when we used to sit there right next to close to each other, and I used to sit right there in that middle seat, and you used to sit there and drive. He said, Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am, I do. And she said, What happened? He said, I didn't move. And the idea is he's reminding her that who moved in the situation was the wife moved from the middle seat over into the passenger seat. And so when God comes into this passage, he's going to talk about his relationship. He wants to remind them that when it comes to our relationship with God, God has not changed and therefore God has not moved. So if you find yourself in here this morning and you're saying, you know, one point in my life, I had a very close relationship with the Lord. I had a very close walk with the Lord. I remember when my intimacy and my fellowship with God was so sweet and I had such a great relationship with the Lord and now I feel dry, now I feel distant, now I feel uh, just lost for direction and for guidance. 
God wants to remind the people of Israel, and I believe God still wants to remind you and I this morning that God has not changed. So many times we want God to compromise with us. We want God to change and meet our needs. We want God to mold into us. And God says, I do not change. He goes on there in verse 6. He says, I do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God wants to remind them that it's his grace, his mercy, his love for people that does not change. If God did change it, we would be in big, big trouble. So God wants to remind them. God reminds them when it comes to the relationship, remember that God has not changed. And he goes on in verse 7, and he talks about the nature of the relationship today. He says, from the day of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. God is reminding them that once upon a time, there was a connection. Once upon a time, there was a relationship. Once upon a time, there was a fellowship between God and his people. And as time went by, as sin crept in, as lives began to move, there was a disconnect. And it was a God that does not change, but there was a people that moved away from God. You ever heard those couples, those husbands and wives, and they reach a point in their marriage, they feel like there's no hope for their marriage? And they say, you know what, we just grew apart. And you have these young people today that think, oh, because they have this kind of an emotion, they have this feeling, they're infatuated with him or they're infatuated with her. Oh, we're just going to love each other forever. And what both parties are misunderstanding is, is that relationship takes effort. And whether a relationship with a friend, whether a relationship with a spouse, whether a relationship with a children, whether a relationship with a coworker or an employer, a relationship with a church, a relationship with a pastor, relationships take effort. And so God is coming in and reminding the people there in verse 7 that once upon a time, we had a, a, a condition in our relationship. We had a certain path in our connection with one another. And yet over time, we begin to get lazy. Over time, over time, with the pace and the speed of life, we begin to neglect those relationships. And then we get to the point in time in our lives that we go, what happened? I don't know this person. I just need to jump. It's because we've spent more time cultivating our relationships with the world instead of our relationships with God. And many times, the danger that we face in our lives because of the pace and the speed of life, we spend more time listening, following, prioritizing the world, and less time listening and following at the things of God, and then we wonder why we're more familiar with our phones than we are with our Bibles. Why do we know more information about sports than we do the Spirit? Why are we more up to date on the latest drama going on in our community and not the spiritual wisdom and insight from the word of God? It's because, it's because we're developing and, in, and investing more in that relationship than that relationship. And it's not a new thing. You see here in verse 6 and 7, God says this has been going on for a while. This has been happening for a while. It's not just you, but your fathers. Your fathers have turned aside from my statutes. So God comes in there in verse 7 and says, return to me. He doesn't say, well, just wait right there. I'll change my mind. He doesn't say, just wait right there. Don't go any further. We'll call that the new standard or the new commandment. He says, come back to me. I want to remind you this morning that drift, drift damages connections. Once upon a time when you, I had less kids, I had more time to go fishing. You get out there in that flat bottom boat, and you'd find the way the direction of that wind would blow, and you'd get over there. Me and my fishing buddy, we'd sit there in that flat bottom boat. We wouldn't paddle, we wouldn't steer, we wouldn't do nothing. We just left the drift of that wind. And we could work that entire pond being able to fish, not having to steer, not having to paddle, not having to oar, not having to motor, not having to do anything, because we could just we could just play with the drift. And the next thing you know, we'd go and we'd go and we'd go. 
Not thinking about where we're going because we know that we're just following the drift. And sometimes in our lives, you and I can get to the point, not just physically, not just emotionally, not just relationally, but we can get to the point spiritually that we've neglected the things of God. And the next thing you know, we find ourselves drifting farther and farther away. And God says, I want you, I want you to know that your relationship with me matters. I have not changed, but in the ebb and flow of human life, you do change. And I want you to give me your relationship like you gave me once upon a time. That's why God comes in here in verses six and seven and he tells them, return to me. Return to me and I'll return to you. You come back where I'm at and I am still here. I am still here. You think about the prodigal son in Luke 15. The father never left, the son left. But when the son came back, the father was waiting. That's the same imagery right here that God is giving them. God is reminding them and God is showing them that I want you to give your relationship back to me. And so the people ask the question, this is the last part of verse seven. The people ask the question, how shall we return? And he says, you gotta understand what it's gonna take. And God speaks to the mouth of Malachi and he says, well, man, rob God, yet you are robbing me. But the people say, how have we robbed you? And God says, in your tithes and contributions. What God was pointing to is that when the relationship began to wane, their devotion began to wane. When the relationship began to wane, their support began to wane. And how true is it then as it is now that we have people that will support what they believe in? And he's going to use this as an example in these next few moments. He's going to use this as an example as a snapshot of the condition of the relationship and the state of the relationship. So he goes in these first few verses and he talks about them giving to God their relationship. And then he uses this example, this, this tithe, if you will. Now, the tithe may be something that some of you may say, I have no idea what that's going on. And some of you in this room may say, well, that's not a New Testament thing. And some of you say, well, I don't want to hear anything about it. But here's how it worked. God established back in the Old Testament a tithe. The tithe was to be a 10%. It was to be the base. It was not to be over the top. That was not the end of it. That was the beginning of it. That is why when we take up special offerings, that is to be in top, on, on top of in addition to your normal tithes and giving back to the Lord. And so this is the way it worked. This is the principle. God would give, and this is just hypothetical, God would give you $100 and say, in exchange for me giving you $100, you're going to give me $10 back. Now, why would God do that? Why wouldn't just God keep the $100? Because God is teaching his people a lesson. Teaching his people a lesson about obedience. Teaching his people a lesson about submission. And teaching a lesson of people about their dependence upon God. So God would give them $100, say, now I am commanding you to give me back $10. But the problem is the people would sit there and look at it and go, you know what, God? You gave me $100. I would rather just give you five. I'd rather give you three. I'd rather give you two. And so they would start cheating on the tithe, giving back to God. And so God had built this in in the first five books of the Old Testament where, hey, when it comes time, you are giving back to God. Now, why would God need that? Does God need the money? No, God doesn't need the money. But what God is establishing was, is God was using this so that they would support the ministry of the temple. He would support the ministry of the priests. He would support the ministry of the kingdom of God. So God set this up so he would give to the people he would give to them vocations. He would give to them resources. He would give, to, and I put it in this way, time, money, and resources. He would give to them, and then they would give back up to God an offering or a tithe, and that tithe and that offering be used to support the work of the church. You may not understand this, and you may not have not thought of this before, but it costs money to do ministry. Electricity costs money. OG&E doesn't give it to us for free. 
The building costs money. Ministry costs money, and, and these things go. And so back in that time, and even in this time, God still has this, where you give to the work of the church, and the church uses the resources that people give in order to conduct ministry and to advance ministry. But the problem then, as well as now, is that people begin to skimp. They begin with to hold. And as the people's giving went down, then the church starved for resources. The priests of the temple starved for resources. Ministry began to wane. And then the spiritual temperature of the church began to cool. That's why you have so many churches now that are plateaued or declined. Part of the reason is, is because they're just flat anemic for resources to be able to conduct ministry. And it becomes a cycle, if you will. And here in verse 9, God is going to speak to this condition of the people not giving to God. And instead of God just looking at him and going, you know what, you need to up it by $7. You need to up it by $13. God says, no, this is an indicator of your faith. And so not only does God want us to focus in our relationship, but also focus in our faith. Because you read there in verse 9 what God says. God says, you are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation. So what this is doing is, it is not just taking away from the local ministry of the church, but it's taking away from the kingdom work that God has made available to the church. I told you before, and you're probably tired of me hearing, you say, hearing me say it. Within the 10-mile radius of the church, there are 14,000 people in residence. Of those 14,000 people, 49% are under the age of 40. Of those 7,000 round number of people under the age of 40, within a 10-mile radius of this church, less than 25% attend a church anywhere of any denomination, of any religion, period. So of that 7,000-ish under the age of 40, less than 25% are in church. It's not a matter that we're in competition with another church. We're not in competition with another organization. We're in competition for the lost souls of this community. And we want to say, oh, well, yeah, we need to reach them. Oh, we need to go after them. Oh, yeah. And you know what? All of this requires time, money, and resources. So we get stingy. I'm not going to give that. I'm going to give it designated. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do that. And God's going to say, it's a, it's a matter of your faith. So you look there in the text. Not only did he tell them the state that they're in, they're cursed. <clears throat> and not only are they cursed, but they're robbing the whole nation. They're not just robbing themselves. They're robbing them. And so he says in verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. He said, give me what I have put it in your heart to give me and then see. In other words, what God is saying is, I'm going to give you so that you can give me. God has never asked you to give him anything that he hasn't first given you. God loves me and God then calls me to love him. God has provided for me and therefore has for me to provide for other ones. God has forgiven me and has called me to forgive other people. So he says there in verse 10, he says, bring it into my house. And I have this underlined in my Bible. You might underline it in yours. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. He said, bring it. Give the offering, sacrifice, make the decision, make the commitment, write out the check, bring in your time, your money, and your resources, and see if God cannot take care of it. See, so many times our faith is revealed by our action. We can say all day long, oh, I believe this, oh, I believe this, oh, I believe this, or I believe that. But really, it's seen in our action what we really believe. 
and how we really believe what we believe. And so many times, what we say with our mouths is not what we do with our hands. So God comes in here and says, not only do I want you to give me your relationship, I want, to give, I want you to give me your faith. Because let's be honest, money drives everything. You gotta have money to drive to church. You gotta have money to have something to drive to church. You gotta have money to wear something to church. You gotta have money to eat something before you come to church. You gotta have money to go back to something after you leave church. It's always about money, 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 money. And it is not an accident. It is no coincidence that very few of us ever seem to have enough money. Some of you couples that have been married longer than I, you got married and you were so broke you didn't know how you were gonna make it. And now here you are, your income has substantially improved and yet it seems like Money is still scarce. And I remember years ago when I was in the oil field and I remember listening to some of these older men in the oil field that just said, Spence, it doesn't matter how much money you make, it matters how much money you spend. And you know what seems to be a parallel with the more money we make, the more money we spend. Or Friday night with our dinner group, it was brought up about how much Jaylene and I spend a month on groceries. The more kids you have, the more money you spend, the more things that come around. But every time it comes down to a decision, what am I going to prioritize? Am I going to put my faith first in God or am I going to put my faith first in myself or this world? And so sometimes you hear people say, well, I can't afford to. Some people say, well, I don't have it. Some people say, well, I'm not there yet. And I would tell you, trust in God. Give that time. Give that money. Give that resource back to God. Some of you high school students and other younger students, you may say, well, I don't have any money, Spence. You still have time. You still have talent. You still have resources. God has gifted every single one of us in this room for us to contribute to the kingdom of the Lord and the, the kingdom and the work of the Lord. Give it to God. You'll give it to your team. You'll give it to your school. You'll give it to your show. Give it to God. And he says, test me, test me, test me. God is saying, just try it. Just see if I won't bless you. Oh, he says, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says, you don't believe me? Just try it. And you know what? If you try it and God does not come through, then you can say, oh, Spence, I've tried it. But I can tell you on the confidence based upon the word of God, you're not going to come back and say that God failed you. So he says, give me your faith. Give me what you have. And whether you realize it or not, we can never outgive God. There is never a point that you can sit through there and God can say, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I don't have any resources to give him because he's given it all back to me. Just this last week, I was reading my Bible reading of an Exodus. And you know, when God gets Moses in Exodus and he has them construct the, the Ark of the Covenant, he has them construct the tabernacle, and he puts into the heart of the people to give, to give the resources and to give the money and to give the materials so they could build these things. And as the, the true craftsmen are sending them, they start to craft these things together. The people are coming and they're bringing offerings. They're bringing uh, the material. They're bringing the blessings. They're bringing all the resources that are necessary. It gets to the point that the two craftsmen look at Moses and say, Moses, tell them to stop. We've got too much. We have enough. Tell them to stop. And then the point that Moses goes to the people and said, stop giving to the work of the Lord. Imagine 
Imagine a body of believers that are so generous to God that God's kingdom and God's ministry and the church that serves to make God known has more time, money, and resources than it knows what to do with. Oh, praise be the day that the church or the pastor or the deacon would get up and say, we're not taking up an offering this morning because we don't need an offering this morning. And God is saying, just trust me with your relationship. Just trust me with your faith. But then for the sake of time, we got to keep going. Then he goes on there in verse 11. And he talks about our hope. He says, trust me and give me your relationship. Give me your faith. <clears throat> but then give me your hope. In verse 11, he just talks about it. And he says, you know, it's a, it's a matter of your heart. It's a matter of the condition of your heart. And it's a matter of the state of your heart. Yes, your money is an indicator of your heart, but more so than that, your heart is what is going to drive your money. Your heart is what's going to drive your actions. So he says, not only your relationship, not only your faith, but also your hope. So in verse 11, notice the key words there. There's this, there's this two-word phrase that you see more than once. God says, I will. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the future of your soul. And the vine of the field not shall urge the vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Notice who is doing the work. Who is doing the work here in this passage is God. God says, I will so that you will. Let me just ask you this morning just a couple of questions in connection with this. What can God not do? What can God not do? You find yourself in a pickle, you find yourself in a jam, you find yourself in a spot that you really don't know what to do, you really don't know where to go, you really don't know, what, don't know where to turn, and somebody says, well, you prayed about it, why don't you need to pray about it? I don't need to pray about it. Let me just ask you, what can God not do? God tells them there in this passage, if you will, if you will give me your relationships, if you will give me your faith, then I will. I will take care of your fields. I will take care of your produce. I will take care of your prospering. I will take care of your needs. I will do all of this. What can God not do? There is not a thing that God cannot do. But in contrast, what can we do? So many times we find ourselves holding back and crimping on God because we think we have a better idea. What can we do? We can't forecast the weather. We can't predict the stock market. None of us in this room can even tell you what Russia's going to do. You know, when you think about it, we really don't have a lot of control or a lot of power to do anything. Oh, yes, you can get up. Oh, yes, you can brush your teeth. Oh, yes, you can come to church. But in the grand scheme of things, in the 50-year picture of things, in the internal picture of things, what can you do? Ultimately, we are dependent. We are dependent upon air to breathe. We are dependent on life to give. We are depending on things to sustain us. We're depending on a vocation to earn a living for our families. We're dependent upon God for giving us day after day after day. We're ultimately dependent upon God for bringing us salvation. What can God not do versus what can we do? So here in verse 11 and 12, God just comes in and says, ha ha, your hope, not only your relationship, but your faith, but also your hope. We put our hope in money. We put our hope in relationships. We put our hope in a government. We put our hope in politics. 
politics. We put our hope in medicine. We put our hope in a new job. We put our hope in a new possession. We put our hope in a new experience. We put our hope in a new city. We put our hope in a new college. We put our hope in a new iPhone, vehicle, fishing rod, whatever it is, we put our hope and say that will provide the happiness that I'm looking for. That will provide the needs that I'm having. That will provide the joy I am missing in my life. And God comes in and says, why not put your hope in me? So he says, if you will put your hope in me, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of all of these things. And if you look down through here, they're all connected. Not just the relationship was connected, but the relationship, their faith, and their hope is connected. All of these were conditions of the heart. And all of these were revelations of the heart. So God comes in and speaks to the people and says, I want you to give me. I want you to give me your relationship. I want to give you to give me your faith. I want you to give me your hope. You may say, Spence, that's kind of a, that's kind of a negative thing, talking about all the things that God was holding them accountable for. So let's talk about some good stuff. Let's talk about some good stuff and the fact that you can influence a generation by your life today. You see, hope influences generations. And it's one of those things that when you and I come and we live a legacy, we live an example, we live a testimony of somebody that had the relationship with God right, someone that had their faith in God right, and someone that had their hope in God right, it can influence generations to come. If you look back up there in verse 7, he talks about from the days of our fathers. He's talking about something that continues on. But then also he talks about God. Let me give you a few things just in the idea of the good stuff that we can pull out of this passage this morning. The first thing I want to remind you of is that God cares. God cares. What do you mean God cares? God cares about you. God cares about our hearts. God cares about our eternity. And God cares about our witness. How do you know that God cares about me? Because God is still speaking to you. We have an entire generation right now that is growing up that thinks that God doesn't care. They think that they are not seen. They think that no one cares about them. No one notices about them. You hear these sad stories about young people taking their lives because they felt like no one even knew that they existed. But at the end of the day, regardless of where you're at in the room, God cares for you. God loves you. God loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. God cares enough to tell you the truth so that you will return to him, God wants you to know that there is such a thing called forgiveness for our sins. Every single one of us in this room has sinned against a holy God, and God cares about our sin. God cares so much about our sin that he sent his son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. God cares so much that he made a way that you might be in right, have an opportunity to be in right relationship and fellowship with him. We repent of our sins. We confess our sins to God. We ask to be forgiven of those sins, and because Jesus died on a cross for my sins and for your sins, we might be forgiven and might know that we have eternity with him forever in heaven. But God also cares about you so much that he wants you to know the truth about what happens if you don't. And the Bible tells us that if you were to die in your sin, you then stand, you then stand in judgment for your sin. And because God cares about justice and because God cares about righteousness, God tells you that if you die in your sin, then you will be held accountable for your sin and the penalty, the payment for sin is eternity in hell. Not at the lake, not a little league baseball game, not a parent teacher conference, 
not in a church service. The eternal punishment, weeping, gnashing of teeth, darkness, separation from God, the worst possible conditions you can imagine. Speaking to a man two days ago, and he had an OU hat on the back of his bookcase, and I thought Charles would be proud. And those were visiting, his phone began to ring. And you know what it was, Charles? I thought, that's what it's going to sound like maybe in hell. I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell you for sure. It's just a thought. Just a thought. But it's one of those things that God cares so much about you. That he's willing to come to the people here and going to say, I'm going to tell you they're missing the mark. I'm going to tell you the condition of your heart is starting to wane. I'm going to tell you that the condition of your heart is starting to be callous and it's starting to grow cold. I want you to know because I care about you. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're listening to my voice or you're watching me on Facebook or you're listening to me in some other way or format, I just want to remind us as the people of God, God cares for us. So if we get to the point that we feel that the world is kicking our teeth in, if we get to the point that we feel like every time we try to stand up, the world knocks us down, if we feel like we can't ever get a step forward, if we feel like everybody is out against us, it doesn't matter what we face in this life, God still cares for us. God comes into these people, and even though they had left God, even though they had strayed away from God, even though they were holding out on what God was calling them to do, even though they become selfish in the relationship, they become minimal in their faith, and their hope was in other things, God still cared enough to say, I'm still here. Come back to me. The reminder is that no matter where you and I are at, God not only cares, but God can. God can restore who we are. God can repair where we've gone. And God can redeem us from wherever we find ourselves back to him. Because God cares and because God can. God is telling them there. He is saying, return to me and I will return to you. God tells them later on in verse 11, I will rebuke so that you will. So then all the nations will, for you will be a land of delight. God says, because I care for you, I'm gonna tell you that when you turn from this world, when you turn from your sin, when you turn from yourself, when you turn from all the other things that do not glorify or be or are in submission to me, not only can I, but I will. I'm not going to say that you come back to God and everything goes back like what you wanted. Because the reality is, is there's still consequences for our actions. Relationship may still be strained. A vocation still may be lost. Consequences may still be present. But I'm going to tell you that your relationship with God will be different. Your fellowship with God will be different. Your eternity will be impacted and influenced forever. Because God cares and because God can. And so God tells them, you come back to me and you let me take care of your tomorrows. You let me take care of your future. You let me take care of your needs. You let me take care of your direction in your life. Because God cares, God can. And then this last one, and we're done. Because God is calling. 
We mean God is calling. I haven't heard my phone ring. It's not that God is calling you on the phone. It's because God is calling you. He's calling you individually right now. What is he calling me for? Why is he calling me? He's calling you to serve him. He's calling you to follow him. He's calling you to give your relationship, your faith, and your hope in him. He is calling us to serve him for the purpose and plan he has for our lives. This morning in Sunday School, I just talked about how this equality of Christian believers, and we have equality. But God calls us specifically. Not everybody is called to help in the ministry. Not everybody is called to lead us in singing as Greg so wonderfully does. Not everybody is called in the same way. But I do believe that God is calling you right now to give your life to him, to serve him, to follow after him, and to put him first in your life. How do you know that God is calling me? Because God has put you here to hear the truth. And God has placed you here to have an opportunity to respond as God would call and lead you this morning. You might be here this morning, you may say, well, Spence, what does this have to do with me? Here's what I say it has to do with you. Every single one of us has either time, money, or resources. Some of us have more than one, some of us have all three, but every single one of us has something that we can give back to God. So this morning, I'm not asking for your money. I'm not asking for eight hours a week. I'm not asking for you to do a a certain number of actions. What I'm asking you to do this morning is to make sure that you're giving to God what God is calling you to give to him. And it may be your mornings. Maybe a Sunday night, it may be a Wednesday night. You might have a talent and a resource and an opportunity that you've never shared because Quite frankly, you don't want to step out of your box. Or maybe you just need to make yourself available and say, I don't know what that's going to do, but God, here I am. I'm going to make myself available to you. I don't know what it is that God is calling you to, but I can tell you that it's a condition of your heart more than it's a condition of your money. And I want every single one of us in this room to be thinking about what is God calling us to. Because whatever God is calling you to, Until you give him what he is calling you to give to him, you're not going to be where God wants you to be at this morning. Would you bow your heads with me?